Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Right. Spring break, remnant of grace. Settle in. John chapter 6 is upon us. Let's open our Bibles to that great chapter. John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying verses 1 through 21. So John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I, Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Oh man, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And ask now that you yourself would be in all of your riches front and center for our minds, our hearts, and our lives. Help us to become a people more and more who look to you and trust in you as absolutely, divinely, all-sufficient for our lives and for eternity. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I was making biscuits Wednesday morning. It's what I do to, 
to get us over the hump of the week. And it's something that I enjoy to do. Uh, but this Wednesday was a little bit different. Normally, uh, my task is rather, rather mindless that early in the morning. I'm just making biscuits, throwing it all together, trying to perfect my craft. Uh, this time, I had actually read something while getting out of the bed, however. It's just a lesson that you probably should maybe not do that, you know, reading and everything. Uh, but I read something getting out of the bed, and it was a description of sights and sounds around a church in Ukraine. And we'll come back to that, but suffice it to say, it read something uh, that you, like something that you might have read like out of Lamentations, okay? And it got me thinking as I got out my flour, my milk, and my butter, and I set out the jelly and the honey and then the cinnamon and the sugar and ground our coffee and ran clean water through it and pulled out not just any creamer but coconut creamer and laid it all out on a table marked by peace and prosperity. It got me thinking, how detached our American experience can be from global reality. How the blessing of much, while a blessing, can also prove to be a curse insofar as it hardens us to the real need of other people and to head where we want to go this morning to the real need that we actually continue to have every second of our lives. It is not easy to make and then eat buttered biscuits topped with a sweetness of your own choosing and move on from it with a deep sense of our utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. Didn't say it couldn't be done, just that it can be made the harder. Nonetheless, if there's a lesson uh, disciples of Jesus must learn, it is precisely this, how dependent we truly are upon Jesus for the life that He saved us to live, how we can do nothing, he says, a little bit later in John chapter 15, we can do nothing and not want to do anything apart from him. This is pivotal for his disciples. I don't know if you know this, but the text in front of us details one of the literal few events that all four Gospels record. Okay? One of those things is the cross. Another one of those things is the resurrection, and the other thing is this. Think about that. Do you think it might be a little important to who Jesus is, what he's about, and how he wants us to think and believe and operate as his people? What we find in our text this morning is really, truly massive for Christian discipleship. And so let's come to the text just like that. And first, consider the setting of Christ's divine sufficiency. If you look in verses 1 to 4, uh, we just want to recall here that he has just defended the great thesis, right? That he is the, the co-equal, the divine Son of God. That truth has in no way been set aside from John chapter 5 to now John chapter 6. In fact, he's just further acting here to show again the truth that he's just argued. And this is the history John gives to us. Uh, John tells us that Jesus has gone to one side of the sea of Galilee, but no matter where he goes, a great crowd now seems to follow him. And uh, how can they not? They've seen him do the works of God with a specialization in healing the sick. And so it makes sense that a broken people who would be in any way aware of their real needs would be attached to him at the hip wherever he went. And I trust we can understand that. Maybe I didn't so much when I was 25, but now that I'm 40, I cross that plateau from 39 to 40. The longer we live, the more we feel our mortality. And then is there any doubt that we would have been among these masses as well? Please heal me. And honestly, there is something useful in seeing them follow Jesus wherever He goes. Letting His direction guide their every step. It's like He's their home. They're sojourning with Him. And that is a, a good lesson for us to see. But then I do think 
we have to try to improve the lesson. You see, we need to understand that this gospel is written, as John's going to say towards the end, uh, not just that we would believe in the Son of God and have life in His name, but that then of necessity that faith would be real. It would be real, true faith. And so John writes to clarify both the necessity of true faith in Christ and what that faith is and is not. And so he clarifies often saving faith, not by giving us saving faith, but by depicting superficial faith, the contrast. And God bless him. John does not want us to be confident in a counterfeit. And neither does Jesus. He wants us to have the full assurance of true faith. So what we have in our text, verse 2, is just another instance of clarity by counterfeit. You have to go through chapter 6. You have to work your way all the way through it to see this faith kind of play out here. But needless to say, we are met again by that sign, deep, kind of faith. That awe at His works, which were so marvelous, that despite their true intent to lend messianic credibility to His words, yet despises that word when that word addresses their souls. It's a faith that will readily eat like a king from the hand of Christ, only in the end to have no appetite for the cross of Christ. It's a faith that Jesus will serve, but in no way cater to as saving faith. And so while we find a fine lesson in the crowd's commitment to wherever he's going, we know in the end it proves to be a fickle kind of commitment that it needs improvement. Because while we love Jesus who heals and gives cause for a lot of dear Facebook posts and things of that nature, what happens when that Jesus looks us square in the eyes and begins to say things like, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. Again, you got to finish all the way through the chapter. <laughs> what happens when he calls cold, dead hearts to leave sin, which we love so much, for the salvation that's in his cross? Will this crowd of people love Jesus then? Will they be around Him then? Because a true disciple absolutely will be. Well, Jesus knows the kind of faith that they have. He knows this about them. And still, see, I want you to see, He does keep a heart to serve them. Because, at the human level at least, who knows? Maybe there's a Capernaum official in that crowd. He'll see the, the great work that Jesus does and he'll, he'll believe the Word of Christ that's coming. Who knows? But nearer his mind here, I think, this is an occasion to develop his disciples, his discipleship. An occasion to develop his disciples in a very critical way. And so there they are, right? They're, they're seated on the mountain here. There's the whole world, as it were, before them. What are they to do? It's obvious, isn't it? They're to throw a feast where there is basically no food at all. And why would that be obvious? Well, it wouldn't be for us. <laughs> But, verse 4, it's almost Passover, and Jesus is God incarnate. Passover and God. And so, cue the Exodus backstory that's here in John chapter 6. Cue that story with its heavenly bakery and the free special that we call manna. The occasion is ripe, it's pregnant. Uh, with redemptive significance. And the question is, will anybody get it? 
Will anybody get it? Will anybody get who He is? And not just the great horde, but also the small band of Christ's disciples here. Will they get it? And here He sits with those that He means to change the world for Him. These are the guys. What do they need to know to carry out His ministry? And do note here, That when Jesus is at what many a minister would hail the the apex of ministry, the the mountaintop of ministry, thousands in the congregation, Jesus focuses first on the (laughs) twelve and developing the twelve. They, most importantly, need to know that He alone is divinely sufficient for that ministry. And this is the setting for it. This is the setting for it. And so we come to the question of Christ's divine sufficiency in verses 5 to 9. And you see verse 5, it's Jesus who poses the question. Here they come. 5,000 men. Uh, They speculate, maybe it's even up into the 20,000s of people on the whole. But 5,000 men, at the very least. Here they come. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat Philip? Okay, tag, you're it. And we love Philip. Philip surveys the crowd and he comes to a sound economic conclusion. Verse 7. Uh, Jesus, 200 denarii, roughly eight months' salary, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a Lord's Supper cracker, a little. I mean, maybe if we had a Hashuerus with us, uh, you remember him? Maybe, maybe if we had Solomon, if we want to be a little more holy about it, right? Uh, if we had Solomon with us, maybe we would have enough, but uh, we don't. It's just us, and, and Jesus, we're, we're all rather poor men, aren't we? Okay, well, now here comes good brother Andrew. Good brother Andrew, he, he hears this and shows he's at least made an effort at surveying the resources at their disposal. Verse 9, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two sardines. Before he also then concludes, but what are they for so many? And when it comes to doing truly divine ministry, I little wonder if that's not so often our conclusion also. We are Phillips and Andrews. Philip focuses on how much it will take. How much it will cost. And Andrew, not at first succumbing to that kind of thinking, focuses rather on how little we have at our disposal. But ultimately, the conclusion is the same. When you ask Jesus, what you ask Jesus is impossible for us. And we hear them saying it's an impossible task for us, and we might actually say then, that is very true. But we can't forget that when they say something like that, they mean to include Jesus in their insufficiency. And that has been the test the whole time that they have failed. They don't yet entirely realize who Jesus is and what that means they have in Him to do the things that He's called them boldly, even impossibly to do. In their own minds, their capacity for divine ministry is limited to their capacity for that ministry. And there is a sure truth and a grave error in that. On the one hand, it is true and good to realize our inability to do truly divine ministry in and of ourselves. That is actually so much the key to doing well what we can by Christ. But that's just the thing. By nature, we are not so quick to realize that. I mean, we might say we do, but really, we don't. And we probably could 
discern that about ourselves by a quick survey of our prayer life. I pray that it would give a different story than the one I'm suggesting. But no, we, we tend to be mere pragmatists. Christ is present in our lives. He's just off to the side. He's another one of the guys. He's in the dock. Meanwhile, we look at what we have to do. We check all the resources that we have at our disposal. And we do one of two things, neither of which are very good. We either overestimate what we can do and create a ministry with lots of activity and perhaps very great crowds as well. But it's all rather powerless because from start to finish, it's just human. It's not supercharged. Lots of stuff getting done, but very little divine. Then on the other side, more like our brothers here in the passage, we again move from the task before us, it's so big, to the resources we have, they're so little, and we just conclude there's no use trying and we surrender to the impossibility. And so on the one slope, there's a lot of faith in ourselves, and on the other slope, there is despair and there is inactivity because of ourselves. One group says, we can do this. And the other of us says, we are what we are. And both in their own way, are an application of the devil's will. He does not want us to engage in truly divine ministry. He is fine. Listen. Satan is fine with Christ beside us, but not front and center. He is fine with either hopelessness or lots of hope in ourselves. He is fine with inactivity or lots of merely human activity. He does not want us to see and act on the capacity that we really do have in Jesus Christ. He does not want us to hope in Jesus, whereby we begin to lean into omnipotent grace. He does not want us to learn our actual dependence upon Jesus. He doesn't want us to learn about His sufficiency for ministry or to learn to begin to really, truly, consistently, maybe even constantly pray. But that is exactly what Jesus wants. And that is precisely then what He's always after. And so we move into the exercise of Christ's divine sufficiency. You see it in verses 10 to 13. There are, verse 10, 5,000 men. And we know from the other Gospels again that Jesus, the great host, has the disciples seat the crowd by fifties and by hundreds. And uh, he, he takes the loaves with the sardines in verse 11, he thanks God. Listen to this. He thanks God for the little they had. Note that. He too is looking upon this great crowd. He too knows what the task will require. He too knows what they have to work with, and yet he does not disparage the little they have, even a little. The five and two was a gift of God. No less than if it had been eight years of wages. And so Jesus takes the, the five and two into His hands and He thanks God for them and then He commissions His disciples. What do I mean? I mean what Mark 6 verse 41 tells us. Here, in our passage, it's just that Jesus distributed the food. You go to Mark 6.41, you're going to find something a little bit different. It says that Jesus gave the things, the breads, the elements uh, to the disciples, and it was the disciples who then distributed to the crowds. And so you put those passages together, and what do you get? You get the way of truly divine ministry. 
you get how that's going to actually be done. There is what we've received from God. And then we take what we've received from God and, and we give it back to God. We place it, as it were, in the hands of Christ. We entrust what we have to Almighty grace. And then it gets placed back into our hands, having that blessing to distribute to whatever crowds He is happy to give us. See, their utter dependence on Jesus does not, by Jesus' own progression, lead to inactivity. They're not just sitting there watching Him do this remarkable thing. They're a part of it. What's happening here is that their activity is being infused with divine power. Ministry must begin by looking to Jesus, but it never ends there as it relates to our activity. You and I may put Christ to the side, but Christ never puts us to the side. Okay? He wants us to be involved in work that bears the stamp of His divinity. The question for us is, does the ministry that we cook up derive more from our menu or from His? Does our ministry say, He is God? Or does it say, we are great? Does our ministry say, He is the head cook. He is the head chef. He is the host of the banquet. He is the power. He is the hope. And we're just the servants. And what we do first and foremost and all the way through to the end is look to His hand. In our goals, in our emphases, and our ways of doing things, does it say we believe in His divine sufficiency? Is He at the head of the work? Is He at the head of our ministry? He is the head of the church, but is He the head of this one? If so, we can be very bold. Believing Him for leftovers <laughs> that will never be left to waste. So much is His provision. Beloved, did we really see what happens in the passage? If so, let's, not, let's be sure not to, to miss the import of it. Like not, nothing short of a miracle has occurred here. Out of His divine sufficiency, Jesus has not only met the need, but He has blown it far away. It's incredible. Again, such is the abundance of His riches and grace. The crowd ate, it says, not a little. But verse 11 what does it say? As much as they needed. No. As much as they wanted. Andrew's question has then been answered. What are they for so many? Answer, with Jesus, way more than enough. Virtually out of nothing. Christ has filled everybody. And not just in the crowd. But as the disciples who had served the meal began to take up the leftovers, they gathered up 12 baskets full. From five loaves and two fish, Jesus satisfied many thousands of people, hungry people at that, with a dozen baskets to spare. There's more at the end than He began with. So, Let's not doubt the lesson for us disciples. He has them collect all that's left to teach them His divine sufficiency for them. It's a reserve of divine encouragement in ministry. Philip, in my service, you have no cost so great that I cannot meet and repay it in full. Andrew, no little is so little that I cannot take and multiply it for the many. I am all sufficient 
for a divine kind of ministry, and I am all sufficient for you. My disciples, learn to depend on me. Church, are we thinking of our capacity for ministry according to Christ's capacity for ministry? Is it in our hearts to give what we have, whatever we have, in the hope of divine effect? Give Jesus a little boy's little lunch. Give him 30 minutes of Sunday prayer at 9.40. Give him a Wednesday night. Give him a Saturday morning. Give out that one invite to the unbelieving neighbor. Give out the one meal to the brother or sister here that belongs to your church. Give your breadcrumbs to Jesus. For His glory, He will multiply it and satisfy beyond anything that we can ever imagine. He will do more than we could ever ask or imagine. I mean, can you imagine? I always just, this is the image that always comes to mind for me, but can you imagine the disciples taking that bread and then breaking off the same bread over and over and, I mean, how long did that take? That had to be a really long dinner, right? But goodness gracious, over and over and over again until it did all of that. What was that like? Dear ones, listen. Let's not be so faithless as to look to, at, and in ourselves only. In Jesus, we have an infinite supply for the ministry to which He's called us. And we need to learn, again, to truly lean on Him. Or, to move ahead, let's have no part in the misapprehension of Christ's divine sufficiency. As we have it in verses 14 and 15. What will the crowd make of all this? What will it make of Jesus? I want to let you know, I've talked to you, some of you about this before, I, I've been in crowds. I've been in crowds where the clouds have parted. <laughs> oh man. Where those who could not see Him at all suddenly declare Him, my Lord and my God forevermore. I've seen it. <sighs> well, these here, They've experienced a humanly impossible performed for them. Will the clouds over their hearts part? They see the sign, verse 14, and we know what those signs preach. Remember from John 5? It preaches that Jesus is the Son of God sent as the Father's exact imprint. And see, they, they do discern something great about Him. Right? How can they not? They say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And we can, we can thank God that they do see some aspect of Christ's glory while simultaneously lamenting that's all they see. But they do not see His divine glory. Nor, in the end, will they act upon it in repentance and faith in Him for eternal life. Uh, they've just named Him the prophet foretold, the, the greater Moses. And yet, in the end, they're not even going to listen to His word. Recall Nicodemus, back in John 3, right? He, he said great things about Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, that's all well and good, but you need to be born again. <laughs> so here they've said a great thing about Jesus, the prophet who's to come into the world, and yet Jesus discerns their collective intention. And all we really need to know about it, to weigh its virtue, is that it's an echo. An echo of what, you say? An echo of Satan's wilderness temptation of Christ. Worship me. You remember this? 
Worship me. And I'll give you what? All the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. The temptation here is to forego the cross. To get what is rightly His. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the divine Son. But the proof of that and the establishment of God's kingdom lay in the wonder and achievement of the cross. Satan cannot give what is not his to give. The crowning of Christ belongs to God alone. And knowing this, Jesus thrusts the devil through with the sword of the Spirit back at that wilderness temptation. And so here too, though he is not so manifest, the devil appears in the intentions of this crowd and Jesus is quick to thrust him through again. To fight it, and to flee that. They want to take Him by force and make Him king. And Jesus wants none of that. Why? Because they want Him to be their kind of king instead of the king He actually is. This is a constant theme in the Gospel of John. And it's a constant theme in so many lives still today. They want to take Jesus and use Him for their own ends. Well, I, I very much like his economic policy. One says, and another will say, I like his social reform. Or, you know, I, I kind of like his plan for tackling world hunger. Still another, I like his flair. I, li I like how he stands toe to toe with the authorities and dominates them. He wins. And so we also can get on board with Jesus so long as He fits our mold of morality, ethics, cares, concerns, causes, desires, dreams. And listen, listen. You want to find a self-centered Messiah who will take your case and crown and run clear around the cross instead of through it? Trust me, they are not hard to find. YouTube them. But that will not be the King of Kings. That will not be the King of Glory. It will not be Jesus. Where most, if not all, will settle for an earthly kingdom and so go happily with this mob, Jesus withdraws to God by Himself to be solidified for a kingdom and in a kingdom that lasts. One that is going to run Him again straight through crucifixion. So here's the terrible irony really, is, as one put it, quote, he who is already king has come to open up his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus, they fail to get the king they want. And also lose the kingdom he offers. You make your own Christ, you will lose the Christ he is. Which is the Christ you need, most of all. Well... The crowd has misapprehended him, but what about his disciples? We come to verse 16 and onward, and, and with it, the necessary reaffirmation of Christ's divine sufficiency. It is a little bit curious that they leave him for the other side of the sea until we realize, again going to Mark chapter 6, verse 45, that Jesus is actually the one who initiated this. And for reasons likely related to the mass hysteria, Right, the snare of earthly glory, which he avoided, his disciples might not avoid so freely or readily. And so here they are, they're in the boat, and they're on the sea, and he is alone on the mountain. And from here, the entire episode, which John actually squishes greatly, is intended to depict trial. 
Beloved, in Christ's discipleship plan, great storms often follow great winds. That is, to keep us grounded in Christ when the Spirit blows upon our labors in that almighty way so that great things are done for God Hard things will often follow to remind us just how powerless and just how very human we are that the divine Christ may have His glory and that He may have His glory for the wind and for the storm and in the storm. Again, nothing is wasted with Jesus. And so to this trial, verse 17, what do we see? We see it was dark, dark. They were without Jesus, sort of. (laughs) He'd not yet come to them, it says. Now he was aware of them. He was aware of them, so here he will not always keep us out of hardship. He will not always keep us out of hardship precisely that he might deliver us out of hardship. But so verse 18, the sea becomes rough. There's this strong headwind. It was pushing against them. It was stunting their progress to where they wanted to go. No doubt they'd covered what mileage they had at great physical expenditure so that while the storm grew stronger, they grew weaker. And the real possibility of being lost to the sea, which is my worst nightmare, was really beginning to settle in here. Right? These, these disciples, they had just participated in wonders out in the field. And so perhaps they get into the boat and their song went something like, great things we have done. But what about now? Surely their tune has changed. Nervously, desperately even, maybe it was more like, who, oh Lord, can save themselves? <laughs> Reality is, they would not have made it to port without divine help. And that is where Jesus enters the picture. Middle of verse 19. It says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat so that they were frightened. And this is where we need reminding that these guys, for the most part, are professional fishermen. Okay? They had seen and experienced a lot of things, I'm sure, on Galilee at night. Just never anything like this. Because this has never otherwise occurred. Jesus has come down from the mount and found equally sure footing on the stormy sea as on the dry land. Who is he? (laughs) That's the whole point of that little story here. Who is he? He's the one who made the sea. He's the one who parted the Red Sea and the Jordan. He's the one who used a sea creature to bring Jonah to Nineveh, barf him out on the shores of Nineveh. He's the one who in the Psalms commands and calms the wind and the waves. He's the one who loves his own and will not suffer them too long to suffer without his presence. And so he comes to them. And to their fear... He speaks in light of His divine glory these great words. It is I. (laughs) Do not be afraid. What a remarkable thing to say. The sight of Him has suspended all fear of the situation which, by the way, is still raging all around them. And yet they still fear But it's just not the stuff. It's Him. They fear Him. And 
that is quite normal. And we might add even appropriate at two levels. Again, you go back to some of the other accounts here. They think he's a ghost. If you ever saw this, I'm pretty sure that you would be terrified as well. Again, this is not normal. It's not natural. But more than that, if I may go off of Christ's actual purpose here, there's more. And it's that sinners, sinners, cannot sit even in the mediated glory of God without an instinct to tremble with fear. And there is much to fear here. But dear ones, what again does Jesus say to them? There's reason to fear, not just the sea, but even me. <laughs> there is reason. I'm God. Right. What does he say to them, though? Nothing but grace for unworthy sinners. It's me. You, my disciples, have no need to fear whatsoever. He is their divinely sufficient Savior and Deliverer. And that is the point. Church, it's true. We may not always see Him in our trouble. He will probably seldom arrive in our trouble on our timetable. But understand and lay it to heart. He is always moving towards us in it. To show up at the best time usually when we are most at our wit's end and thus most prepped and primed to see and savor His divine glory. And so these verses are to be as consoling as the better part of it is stunning, both for a truly divine ministry and all the troubles, whatever they may be, Attending it, Jesus exhibits His divine sufficiency. You see here, verse 21, He relieves their fear. They sense that He is now for them, not against them. They gladly receive Him into the boat. And what do we know? But there is another miracle. It's a double miracle. Immediately, they'd arrived safely at their desired destination. Their haven, as we read in the Psalms. Psalm 107, Jesus will bring us home and praise Him because He's the only one who can. Dear ones, I want us to hear that Jesus is not just for new life. Right? He's for all of it from beginning to end. Our utter dependence upon Him should know no end. Christian living is really just leaning. It's just leaning into Jesus. So how are we living? How are we living? Are we detached from the true depths of our moment-by-moment -moment need, or are we fixed in the foxhole of it? So did that Ukrainian pastor. He described their situation in a word, quote, destruction. City flattened, he said, raised to the ground. R-A-Z-E-D. City raised to the ground. Gun and cannon fire all around. No electricity, no internet, no gas, no water. Bodies laying in the streets. Too many to clean up. They manage two meals a day. Manage two meals a day. Uh, salty seawater is what they're using for their hydration. They just bathe their children for the first time since the war began. It's all very terrible. A great trial. And do you know how his letter begins and then ends? 
It begins, pray for us. And it ends, God is with us. <laughs> that's incredible. But that's Christian. That's someone living in John 6. The whole thing depicts a reality that reveals just how fragile and impotent we really are. Whether you or I ever experience that in our lifetime doesn't change the fact that as Jesus' disciples, ministry and trial are going to be a part of it. And that we must learn then the lesson of our text. How in Jesus we have all we will ever need for divine progress in ministry, trial, or whatever. All the way to eternity. And what's more, what's more is He's given us the assurance of His riches towards us for all time by making Himself poor for us once for all. Isn't that the takeaway here? He's really wealthy. He is really rich in glory and grace and power. And yet, how very generous is Jesus. How willing to give, to sacrifice even Himself. Listen, this mob right here in verses 14 and 15, that mob is going to come again to take Him by force, but for a very different reason. They're going to come and they're going to take Him. Only this time, He is going to willingly go with them. He's going to go to the cross, and there on the cross, He's going to be crowned King indeed by the gift of His own life for the provision of our souls. Dear friend, listen, if you would be saved from your sins this morning, the provision for you has already been made. You have only to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And you'll have all you'll ever need for salvation. And beloved, you know that is just the start. That is just the start of leaning into Him for everything related to being Faithful disciples. Faithful disciples in the wilderness of ministry. Faithful disciples in the sea of trial. And even faithful disciples in the excessive bliss of baking butter biscuits. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray that out of your sufficiency, you would meet every need, every want. You would satisfy every soul. You would save the lost. And you would just bless your people with so much confidence, so much hope, so much expectancy, so much joy in you and you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.